It's December 7th. Today, the sun rises at 7.16 a.m. and sets at 5.15 p.m. This gives us nine hours and 59 minutes of daylight. And as we drop below 10 hours of daylight in 24, we enter an important phase in our growing year, which some farming communities around the world call Persephone Days. For many plants, less than 10 hours of daylight signals the time for a suspension of all growth. This is the end, the opposite of the growing season. Until the light returns, life is in pause. In terms of our season of the educational underworld, the name resonates since it refers to the months when, as was held in Greek mythology, Persephone must go to the underworld to live with Hades, its ruler, and her mother, Demeter, the goddess of growth and harvest, withdraws her influence from the world and all crops cease to ripen and bear fruit. In her grief at her daughter's term in the underworld, Demeter ensures that the world's life is in suspension. Welcome to Persephone Days here in Columbia, South Carolina. I'm Claire Houle, a writer and instructional designer at the Center for Teaching Excellence at Midlands Technical College here in Columbia, South Carolina. Join me as we once again branch out following the roots and filaments of teaching and connection here at the college. What is the place we allow for failure in higher education? How could we better understand and engage with failure in our work with students and in our professional lives? This is Instructional Ecology. Welcome back. As our seasonal opener tells us, our natural world and our college ecosystem is now in Persephone days, a time when new growth is not possible. To me, this chimes powerfully with our talk about failure. When any of us enter failure, we never know how long our Persephone days, our time in the underworld without new growth, will last. How long will it take us to recover? How long will it take us to begin to feel we are growing and living again? This season, both of the podcast and of our natural world, insists that we stick with this pause and the difficulty and uncertainty of it in this time of suspension. Today, we'll talk about the conversations that can happen in that pause, that place of uncertainty about future growth and possibility. One of our questions for the season is about a place for failure in higher education. And when I talk about it with people at our college, I often ask, if there were a place for failure, who would be there with a student? Our guest today is one of those people who could be there. In many ways, she already is. Tanisha Krum is both an advisor and a professor. She shuttles between these two spheres of influence and therefore is going to bring some excellent perspective about the ways in which students choose to talk about failure with faculty and with supporting staff. I think that by setting these two roles alongside each other, we'll get a very focused snapshot of how students make choices that feel useful to them that perhaps aren't the most procedurally productive when it comes to dealing with sliding grades. 
Let's hear from Tanisha. And after our conversation, we'll add up a few things we've revealed in our season so far and think about our work once again as existing in an ecosystem of education at the college. Hello, my name is Tanisha Kroom. Um, I joined MTC in 2020 as a psychology professor. And now I'm serving as the Associate Director of Advising Technologies and Operations. And I am an adjunct psychology professor. I'm, I'm so looking forward to talking with you because you have deep experience in two different places at the college. And um, I would love to know about being both an advisor and a faculty member. What kind of insight do, does living in those two worlds offer you here at the college? I think being both faculty and an advisor puts me in an interesting position because I'm tasked as the faculty member to just, you know, teach the information, present it, and, you know, you just move on from semester to semester versus as an advisor, I get to spend a little bit more time engaging with the students and really getting to know them more on a personal level than I would um, in my capacity as a faculty member. That kind of continuity and length of conversation, I think you're right, just provides a different depth of a relationship uh, than that intensity and brevity you can get with one semester. Well, one of the things that I'm really hoping we can talk about today is Exactly that is talking about failure, because one of the things that you and others have said to me is that um, it's really hard to talk about failure with students. And you've mentioned to me, and you see this on both sides of your, your work, is when students struggle, they'll admit to you as an advisor, they haven't spoken to the one person who could help them, who is the faculty member even though they know they should. What is that all about? What kind of effect does this, this choice to not speak have for them? It has a tremendous effect on the student's success. Because what I do as an advisor, I've been working to try to foster those relationships to encourage the students to go introduce themselves to their professors, to build that rapport. And by building that rapport, they have the opportunity to engage and be able to be open about what they're struggling with, which is essentially what's most important because this is the individuals that's that's grading your assignments, you know. So that's definitely the person you want to have the best relationship with because they're giving you that grade. But it also opens the door once you introduce yourself to say, hey, I need help and to get that help before, you know, things become catastrophic. What do you figure, and I know that this this may be one of those uh, impossible mystical, mystical questions, what is the root of this reluctance on the part of the student to reach out to this faculty member who they might admire and like um, or trust? What? Why won't they speak? When students think of a professor, they probably get the image of their head, especially for, you know, new students just coming in there first generation students coming into college and they envision the professor as what they see on television, you know, stern, I'm just going to give you the work, you do the assignment, I don't want to talk to you, 
you know, they kind of have that general consensus in their mind that I can't go to this person. You know, I'm not smart enough to engage in a conversation with this individual. So that kind of creates a bit of a struggle because of the preset notions of what they already have, which we find is totally different. You know, it's so funny. Uh, movies have really done us dirty, right? You know, that um, that college professors are just usually, like you said, just totally um, characterized as cold and unfeeling and logical, and they're just going to burn you. You know, like they're, they'll just like ruin you with their wit or what have you. Um, and that's, that's, I have yet really to meet someone at the college who, who teaches that way, right? I mean, the reality is so different. And it also suggests to me, I mean, like you said, like they fear that they are so not in the same league with a professor. Maybe they fear judgment. What, what, how does that factor, that fear of judgment in their reluctance to reach out? Um, I guess that's, uh, you know, natural human feelings that um, when we're feeling less than or inadequate, we feel like we're going to be judged or we're going to, we're going to be frowned upon. But I think the main thing with that whole notion is just having the student realize that the professors are human, too. They have human experiences just like them. We have bad days, good days, just like a student. You know, the professors don't know everything there is to know. And we find that we learn a great deal from our students. You know, each semester I'm learning something different that I didn't know. So. Do I feel judged that I don't know everything? Probably if a student is coming to me and they're telling me something, I have no idea what the context is. But I think that's just natural human nature to feel inadequate when you have to ask for help, you know, and that feeling of being judged often plays a major factor. I'm struck too um, when I talked to Centrella Get about the emotion around failure, that there's so much that's isolating about failure you feel alone it's it's happening to you 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 there's no help there's no community in failure it's very isolating but i know that you work against that by trying to illustrate to them i am a person who is an advisor and a professor and but i also have experienced failure tell me a little bit about how you do that to show them that they're not alone I'm a pretty open book, you know, I hope I don't come off intimidating to, you know, any student that I engage with, but, you know, I'm just very transparent and honest to tell them, hey, I barely even survived my first semester here at this school. You know, my grades weren't great at all. It was nothing to run, run home and tell mom about or dad about for sure. But um, I often just uh, prove it because sometimes you have to prove things to the students to show them that you're not just feeding them, you know, a story just to push them along. But I will pull up my first MTC transcript. It is a bit scary to look at like, wow, this is where I started. But I do let them know that it's okay that you'll be fine, even with obstacles. What happens when they look at that? transcript what do you see what what's the journey that happens for them I usually get that you know they'll just stare at me like how's this possible you know they you know, they'll come into your office you know they'll see your degrees hanging up on the wall and they're like that's impossible there's no way that you started off at 
developmental math, developmental English. The, you know, I started off at the first step in everything. You know, I wasn't the strongest high school student. You know, I'm pretty sure my my parents would have wanted my grades to be a lot higher. And even going into college, it was still kind of that mediocre, just kind of barely getting by type of thing going on initially. So just making that connection that I started exactly where you are. And most of the time with students that I find that are struggling, they're, they're starting out at a higher level in which I started off in college. So just being transparent, being human, being open, letting them know that, you know, it doesn't matter where you start. It's, it just matters where you end up, essentially. You know, I think for many of us, when something uh, goes wrong, uh, and I'm going to use a very contemporary term, we like to memory hole it, right? We're like, you know, I'm just never going to think about that again. Let's just move on. But I see you constantly re-engaging by being willing to show them, you know, this is this is what my life was like. It was quite different. My experience was so different. And I wonder over the years, what is your relationship now to those early struggles where there was some failure, there were setbacks, there were redirections, and then success? And what's what's your relationship to that now? I think my relationship, it, I mean, it pretty goes hand in hand on even where I'm at in my life right now. Um, I often reflect on where I started, you know, constantly to kind of remind myself, even when I'm struggling now, even, you know, at the stage that I'm at now in my life, that it's going to be okay. You know, you've overcome all of these obstacles and that's a part of life, you know. And I, the one thing that I take away from those struggles, failures, or the things that I were going through earlier on is that it was always a lesson or underlying reason behind those things. So I usually take those failures and use it as a roadmap to readjust. Like, hey, maybe I need to study a little bit more. Maybe I don't know this as well as I thought I knew it. So I use that as always as a learning experience that it's okay. You'll survive. It's so funny, you know, we we master things and very few of us continue to coast because then we want to do new things. And then we're back in that cycle of I'm doing something new. Perhaps I'm not doing it the best right away. Is that okay? Well, maybe it is. I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to do more. And then I get better and better. And then I get to a point where I'm like, well, that was great. I'm going to do something else. Um, so what I hear you describing is this constant cycle of attempt, reflection, interest, excitement, and then something new. And then, oh, <laughs> I'm back here again. And one of the things, too, that I really hear in that, that, that um, I know you really value is a growth mindset. For you, that was essential. How do you bring that essential quality to your work with students? Well, I guess it initially starts off in my teaching room, because that's one of the first topics that we discuss in all of my psychology classes is the difference between having a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. What is the difference? How do we overcome a fixed mindset to develop into a growth mindset? And that's really the there's no secret ingredient to you know, overcoming that is really just evaluating your own experiences and figuring out where do I want to go from here? And just having that single thought or, or context 
changes your mind from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset because now you're thinking about how can I overcome this? What steps do I need to take? And that's all, a, you know, what growth mindset is this really center around? What do I do next? And developing that plan and it gets your brain all excited and all your neurons and everything start going crazy. Then, it, you know, different hormones and things are released to give you that motivation to say, hmm, maybe I should try this this time. So I always, you know, have this conversation with my students that you may be here today, but, you know, all it takes is one thought in a different direction to change your whole course. What I'm appreciating is so much of teaching isn't like medicine where we give them one dose and they're set, right? It's not like a vaccine where there's, you get your shot and you're good for years. It's a practice. You have to keep reminding them. You have to keep engaging with them. And as just as you yourself practice that, you keep reminding yourself, well, okay, this is sort of familiar. And one of the things to return to, to talking and advising is you're always reminding students that there is help. There's the faculty member, but there are also services. And I think that um, many uh, people that work for the college would love to see students access services more. What do you think is the disconnect there? Because oftentimes either they don't know about them or they don't think to do it. What do you see? Initially, um, it's hard for anyone to say that they need help. But knowing that you need help and how to get help is totally different things. And I think it's just the idea of, I'm having to go here again and show that I failed again. My teacher knows that I failed. My advisor knows that I failed. Now I have to go have a conversation with someone else to say, hey, I'm failing. And I, you know, it's just, I think it's just another blow that the student feels like they have to take because now it's someone else that I have to have a conversation with about what I don't know and I'm feeling inadequate again. So, and then most students, don't know what resources, they don't know what type of help that they may even need. That's one thing that I've discovered even on the advising side. Some students really, they know that they're failing, but they don't know why or how do I overcome it. So I think it's more of a mindset thing is the reason why students really don't access services and feeling embarrassed about having to get support. That's an interesting component to failure that we hear in one of our failure stories is the pain of being observed to fail, right? I mean, it's one thing when you try something and you know that it didn't work out. It's another thing when another person, perhaps one that you respect or has power over you, is aware of it. Oh, that that is a particular kind of emotion and pain. So, and, and that takes me, I think, to uh, um, in talking about failure, one more reason why students would avoid it, or or we might avoid it, right? As faculty or staff, you know that it's painful for us as well, because we don't want to harm them. And yet, you have found that it does not serve the student to avoid it. Tell me a little bit about how, when the talk comes, it's time to talk about a failure. What do you find? is the most effective, helpful thing for them? 
So from an advisor's perspective, you know, it, it usually starts off with the students. I think they feel more comfortable coming to their advisor because I'm not the one that's grading them. You know, I have no connection to their actual course grade. So it's a lot easier to have that conversation about failure and explore it on the advisor side. But as a faculty member, it's a lot more challenging, you know, because you have to tread very lightly. You don't want the student to think that you're judging them, as as we already said, and you don't want the student to develop a fear, you know, of you because they already have this pre-notion that oh, you're the professor. I'm already afraid to come talk to you anyway. Now you're telling me that I'm a failure. It's much more difficult, I think, as the professor to talk about failure because it's uncomfortable for you. It's uncomfortable for the student. And then you're left with what do we do now? And then you don't want to give the student false hope that even if you do all of these things that you're going to pass and that may not be true. And those are hard conversations as a professor that I have to have. Yes, you can turn in every assignment that you missed this semester, but that still may not be enough for you to pass this class. So I find it is a very emotionally taxing on the teaching side to have that conversation. As an advisor, you know, I can be like, hey, well, let's figure out how we can get you help, how we can get you tutoring. Let's try to make the connection so you can talk to the professor. It's a lot easier as an advisor because you could just give it to them exactly what it is, just straight to the point, hey, this is what's going on, but hey, this is what I can offer you. And I think what the disconnect is between the teaching side and the advisor side is that the professor tells you that you failed and then that's it. Nothing else happens. You're just left with that daunting feeling of, oh my God, I'm not going to pass this class versus on the advisor side. I can take you over to show you what this resource is, connect you here, there. It's a lot more relaxed. And I feel like I can be more proactive as an advisor. I feel like you've told us something really important. Um, and my instinct, of course, is to ask you, hey, how how could we how could we change that? What would help? But I I feel like that would be such a we haven't solved that, right? Like there's no obvious answer. So I hope that we and our listeners can can turn that over in our minds. Like, how could we make it easier for faculty to talk about failure? And how could advisors have that? dialogue with faculty. Um, because one of the things too, that it's very easy for us to tip over into positivity with a student, like, it's okay, you can come back next year. It's fine. And, but you know, it, it, it's kind of not fine for a while. Tell me why it's not fine. What happens when is when you watch a student what are they feeling? What's obvious to you about why they can't just immediately pick themselves up and be like, well, that didn't work. I'll just try again. I think it really deals with, I mean, if we look at the student as a whole individual, that they have a whole life and identity outside of their role that they play when they're in college. So it could not be a matter of, okay, we can just move on. I mean, 
their family can be depending on them to get this degree to, you know, provide for the family. I mean, it could be so much more pressure attached to it. And to know that me, if I fail this course, is going to potentially set me back from reaching my goal. I'm never going to reach my goal. It's having that conversation to get them out of that mindset that once I fail, it's, it's over and done with. There's nothing else I can do from here. And letting them know that, yes, even though this is going to be a setback, it's the reality of it that if you fail a class, it's going to impact you, you know, either way, you know, it's going to impact you. It's going to keep you from progressing to your next level. And I think students have a hard time of accepting that I have to do this again. I'm going to stay in the same spot again. So having them be able to understand that it's okay to take a step back, because when you take a step forward the next time, you may do wonderful, you may do great things, or even me, I failed a class twice before. And that's even more daunting, because I'm like, I'm never going to get past this. But it, it just, you just have to consider the student as a whole person, that we don't know the pressures that they're dealing with, you know, in their personal lives and the importance of them getting this education and getting this degree of who they may be letting down by failing a course or the financial impact. You know, we don't talk that much about that is a financial impact as well when you fail a class because that's like money that you're not going to get back, that you're going to have to reinvest again and being able to motivate them that it's okay to reinvest in yourself again. Like, don't just leave it on the wayside. You remind me um, of something that I'm finding as I talk to other people as we dig into failure, that while many students might experience failure, failure is very individual. And there isn't really a formula that we can apply to a great number of students, right? Each student fails for certain reasons and circumstances, and their solutions will also be highly individual, right? Not tutoring doesn't fix everything, and there are different kinds of tutoring, and there are non-academic reasons that students experience failure, right? So what in order to really get into helping people individually, that requires quite a bit. What do you find in our current model? And I don't just mean the college, this is higher education. What are some barriers to being able to really work with a student and figure out their individual issues and then get to solutions? I think the main barrier is that it's just not enough time in a day to really explore every aspect of why this failure occurred. I mean, it can be a numerous thing. And one thing that I always, you know, try to keep in my mind that just because a student fails, it doesn't mean that they don't have the ability or the intellect. It, I mean, you have to understand, like I said, it can be financial reasons. They couldn't afford the book to the course. And your course relies heavily on using this particular book. This is why the student failed the class. And I've experienced that. It wasn't because the student didn't know the material, wasn't willing to engage and do what they have to do. They just couldn't afford the course material. So it could be something as simple as that. But it's just really not enough time to really address every issue that can impact a student's success. 
so intricate. And also, I wonder too, this is something I'm picking up from um, the very beginning of the season, is that there's also in higher education, sort of a blanket way, is that failure is kind of a taboo topic. How do you encounter, what have you learned about that taboo in your time in higher ed? I just realized that if I spend more time focusing on how not to address it, I've lost valuable time in actually addressing the concern and focusing my time more on the solution. I guess that's a part of my personality is that I'm very solution oriented. Problems are okay. They're going to happen. Whether we want to deal with a problem or not, they pop up all day, every day in our lives. But I much rather spend time on problem solving, you know, than spending time on the actual problem and drowning in that realm of things. So that's when I'm having those conversations with students, I just say, let's go ahead and just lay it out on the table. This is what's going on. You know, of course, I'll listen to their feelings of, you know, how do they get here? How do they feel? And of course, I've heard so many different scenarios and reasons. Some very, very interesting, you know, that even surprises me. Okay. And, you know, you have your common reasons. I just didn't do my work like I was supposed to. But I take the little tidbits of information that they tip that they tell me. Oh, for for instance, I just didn't do my assignments. Okay. Now that we know what the problem is, what can we do to what needs to happen for you to engage in your class? Well, I think I need to, to sit in front of the, you know, it could be a matter of the student sits in the back when they need to sit in the front to be able to really receive the information. It could be something as simple as that, but really just having the student focus more on solutions. What can we do to fix it more than drowning in why it happened? Because it happened, we can't take it back, we can't change it, but having them develop the skills and the mindset to say, well, maybe if I try this, this may work. And I tell them, you can try a million and one things and nothing may work. But then it can be that one time you chose to hmm, one last ditch effort and then you ace that class. And then confidence. I'm a confidence booster. I spend a lot of time just trying to uplift them because sometimes they may not be getting that in their everyday life at home. So at least if you know you have one cheerleader in your corner, that can be the difference between a student continuing their education and just not coming back because they don't want to face it. I ask you one of the um, foundational questions for the season, and it's it's a tough one. Um, and I'm looking forward to seeing where your thoughts have led you, which is when we experience failure, there's often loss. Right? We lose an opportunity, an identity, a path forward. And with loss comes grief. So what do you find? Is there a place for loss and grief in higher education? What does that open up for you? I don't think that there is an exact place that I know that I can just go to someone and talk about all of my failures. Yeah, mo just about every college or university, they have, you know, counseling services, but people don't equate that to 
talking about academic failures. They think about mental health issues or other issues around that, you know, realm of things. But there's no place that I can go and talk to anybody and say, hey, I failed and I don't know what to do from here. I guess advisement serve as a safety net to try to catch those students, you know, to try our best to steer them in a direction. But like I've stated before, you want to take that time. You wish you could spend all day and help someone figure out their entire life. But it's not a place in higher education I can just go and just talk about why I got an F or whatever the situation is. If anything were possible, from your perspective as faculty and advisor, what would help? If you could build anything, money, time, no option, who, who cares? Not, not a problem. What, what would you have for them, for students who fail? I think it will be very beneficial to create an environment that fosters the idea of growth having it to where a student can come in at any point of this in the semester to say, hey, I'm failing this class. I don't know what to do. And being able to have brainstorming sessions with the student, you know, having them develop their own ideas because only they know where their struggles lie. And, you know, we're usually, you know, on the faculty end or the advising and you know we're just the receiving and we're just taking in all of the information and trying to sort it out to make it make sense to us on how to best help that student but just having an environment where the student can just come in no matter what time they, they don't have to have an appointment just to say hey I need to get this these thoughts and ideas off can I just sit and talk to you about why I'm failing the course and then having someone be able to help them develop their own ideas and methods on how to get out of the hole that they're in. I love that idea. I can I can imagine that. Who who do you think is in that space for them? What what kind of person? I can I 100% advocate for advisors. I think that we create that space and this may be why students come to us for every aspect of their educational journey from financial aid to books to I just want to come and talk to you because I don't have anybody else that I've connected with. You know, in my classes or on campus, this is like a safety net for the students. You know, just yesterday I had a student come in, didn't have any issues or nothing going on to warrant, you know, them to really come into the office. They just wanted to come in to talk and, you know, learn different things about the school. I mean, I think advisement just provides, like I said, that safety net for students to come in and lay it all out on the line. And then our jobs is to try to clean it up, organize it a little bit to give the students a different perspective and give them the tools that they need once they leave us to apply it on the academic side. So I think that's why we're here. You've given me a great sense of the richness of possibility of relationships with between advisors and advisees, but you're also a faculty member and faculty time is differently um, tasked out, right? You know, that, that, that kind of time isn't 
as much in the job description as instruction, right? That's really where it is. And yet, and yet you've already said that, you know, those relationships are what's important. The student must come to know the faculty member as a person, not as this abstract, you know, vision they have of some stern taskmaster when the reality is quite different. So what would you, what are you learning about how you'd like faculty relationships with students? It's so clear what the relation, the um, advising relationship is. What could faculty put into place in their relationships with students to help with that failure component? I, I think, you know, on the faculty side, I think that it needs to be more engagement. Like, for instance, meet your professor day before class starts. It could be something as, you know, as simple as that for, you know, because usually the student has no idea what you look like, who you are. They just see your name on a schedule. But just having opportunities for students to be able to visit with their professors prior to the class starting. So go ahead and get those initial jitters and they can see that you are a real person and, you know, you have struggles and challenges just like them. I think um, just really faculty has to be more present, you know, more engaging. I try, you know, even in as a professor to make myself available as much as I can possible, just really checking in on their students more. Following up, sending those emails, even though I know every faculty member is like, oh my God, I have a million emails. I have to send another email. But I find when I take that extra step, it makes a difference for that student because they, most students are sitting in the class and they don't even know that they're failing until I say something to them. And then I do get the gracious email. Thank you so much for letting me know that I'm failing the class. And now you begin to engage with the student because you've acknowledged something that they haven't acknowledged themselves. And that lets them know that you're invested in them, that you care about their progress. I didn't let you sit in my class and fail the whole semester and I didn't say anything to you. And I think, you know, at our school in particular, I think the professors, you know, they do a good job of trying to let the students know, hey, your your grades are dropping, what's going on? But just really making it a purposeful interaction not just telling, saying, hey, you're failing the class, but hey, I noticed that you're failing. Here are some resources that I recommend that will help you turn this thing around. Just being more engaging would definitely help. And beyond that, too, if we're going to combat this taboo of not talking about failure until it's happening <laughs> or when we do talk about it, having a very minimal conversation, what do you think are some things that we could do sort of as a higher education culture that would help students be able to engage with failure more productively and not avoid it and, and be terrified of it. I feel like just addressing it as soon as you see that is a concern. The professor, they see the grades, you know, the numbers fluctuate, you know, week after week, you know, when someone is approaching that threshold that, uh, hold on, maybe they need some intervention. 
it just really takes that extra effort to really pay attention to your students as individuals and not as a whole group. And it's hard to do when you have 30 plus people and you have four or five classes that you teach and it's hard to be personable with every student that you come in contact with. But there are things in play that you can do. I mean, you see your grade book. I know one of those teachers. I look at my grade book pretty regularly, at least a good four to five times a week. I kind of got an idea of what's going on overall with the class. I'm looking at the statistics and the stats. So what's going on? Who didn't do well here or there? But addressing it as soon as you see that it's a problem, because we see it before they see it. And some people, you know, they do the stand back approach and just wait to see if the student eventually recover. And that's not necessarily the best approach, but engaging with them when you see the decline, they may not even be failing. But if you see it going down each week, addressing it and, hey, let's have a a quick 10 minute meeting. Let's figure out what's going on here and having or having the knowledge as the professor to know the resources that are available to the student. In my first couple of years of teaching, I had no idea what resources were available that they can use. You know, you have to take that extra step and to get out and, hey, this might help, this might help, and kind of creating a toolbox for the students that they can pull from when they need different tools for different aspects of the course. Is there anything else you'd like to say to your community of of your instructional community, people teaching, people supporting teaching and learning about talking through failure? Um, Anything else that you'd really like to share with the community about what you've learned or what you hope for when you think about, okay, we're going to talk it through with students. What, What would you share with them? For instructors, I would say from my perspective, you know, everyone is different and everyone has their own approaches on how they handle tough conversations. But I find that the most effective thing you can do in the most just as you can serve the student is to be transparent, be honest with them and give it to them exactly how it is. Don't sugarcoat it. Don't you know, oh, everything is going to be all right because it may not be all right. And now you set them up for failure again. But just being honest with them and really engaging with them on the resources that are available to them that can potentially help them, not just in your class, but in someone else's class. And just having an open mind that, you know, we're going into a different time and age. Our student populations are changing, you know, making sure that when you are having the conversations about failure, that you make it a two-way conversation, that you're not just lecturing them because we all love a good lecture, that you're actually listening to the student. Listening helps you be able to better craft a more effective way of helping the student overcome failure or at least being able to live with it and develop a plan to move forward. There it is. There it is. As we reach the end of my questions, is there anything else that you would like to add about failure in higher education? It could be an observation. It could be a hope. It could be a question that you feel like you kind of return to 
My hope with higher education is that we definitely have more conversations, you know, about failure. Of course, it's a ton of literature. You can go read on failure all day long if that's, you know, what you want to do. But just being able to create a safe haven for students when they are going through this transition, because it is a transition, you know, one minute you're passing, the next minute you're failing, it's a major transition. And understanding that it is a loss for the student, you know, it does impact them in more ways than we tend to think about on the teaching side. We're only thinking, okay, they, they failed this class, they'll they'll try again next year. But it's knowing that it's much more bigger than that. You know, failure can be catastrophic to one person and really not a big deal to another person. And really understanding that failure is an individual experience. We all don't experience failure in the same type of way. But it's having a safe haven for students to be able to express their concerns and feelings. Once again, we're finding that while failure is a universal experience, the way in which it's experienced is highly individual. Maybe we're paraphrasing Tolstoy here, that each unsuccessful person is unsuccessful in their own way. Handling student failure and risk of failure as individually as possible seems to be an important theme we have appreciated so far. There are many reasons students at MTC may encounter failure, as we've heard. And this means that, once again, there's no cookie-cutter solution to addressing those issues. We've heard from faculty and staff who are all taking time to understand barriers to student success and active reasons for failure. I think continuing to gather these perspectives will lead us to some powerful possibilities for change in the way we address student failure at our college, and maybe even our own. Now, let me introduce another guide for our season. I'm sending this episode out to you today in honor of a teacher of mine whose fingerprints are on the entire Instructional Ecology Project. Rudy Mankey, South Carolina's great local naturalist, died last month. I've never heard anyone talk so joyfully about death and the cycle of life, which he referred to as recycling, as Rudy. Rudy was always alight with joy and wonder at his experience of the natural world around us. Like many people who heard him speak over the years and talk about predation and death in nature, I was impressed how fully he accepted that life always feeds or draws from other life. I once heard him talk about his anticipation of his own death and his peaceful satisfaction that his components would go back into the ecosystem and be taken up by new life. To me, that's a pretty unusual and wonderful version of productive failure. What if we could think about and talk about students' failure as a chance to allow energy and time to be reclaimed and to flow into new places and nourish new endeavors? Rudy Mankey, over and over again, impressed upon those he taught that all life is connected in an ecosystem, even if it's unaware of all of the components in play. I think that's an important part of this podcast project, to make us better aware of the connections that support and affect our work here at the college. 
If we know and better understand all that influences student success and our own success in our work, perhaps we can work more deliberately together and come to new places to teach our community and each other. I'm making Rudy's life and influence visible here today because we often talk about grief this season, the loss engendered by failure in higher education. Grief is an emotion. Mourning is the public expression of that grief. So today, I, your host, mourn my teacher by making his influence on what you hear every season in the podcast visible to you. If you enjoy the seasonal openers, if you find interest and usefulness in thinking of the college as an ecosystem, if you feel that the web of connection in which you move and work every day is important, then you've received something that Rudy Mankey gave to me over the years. He was one of several voices that encouraged this thinking in me. And now I offer it to you in my own idiosyncratic way. Of course, it's a metaphor. Grief is a way of saying we don't want something good to be lost. But how can someone be lost if their life and energy go back into our community, our lives, our ecosystem, and we recycle it into new ideas and projects and life? Join us next time when we continue our Failure Story series with a deeper look at the story of one of the people who began this project with us last season. Advisor Will Galston will be with us to talk further about his experience with failure in higher education and then to share with us some of what he's been thinking about since our first conversation about the place of failure in learning. He'll get us a little further down the line as we continue to ask if there were a place for failure in higher education, what could it be? Join us next time, deeper into the darkness of fall, to the final point of the shortest day and longest night, and further into the web of our community.